I'm going to read from Psalm 78. It will be on the screen. I'm going to read out of a different text than maybe what most of you have. It is the New Living Translation. But this is the, uh, the text this morning that I would like to teach, in a sense, from. The Psalm of Asaph. Oh, my people, listen to my instructions. Open your ears to what I am saying. For I will speak to you in a parable. I will teach you hidden lessons from our past. Stories we have heard and stories our ancestors handed down to us. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. For he issued his laws to Jacob. He gave his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children so the next generation might know them, even the children not yet born. And they, in turn, will teach their children. So each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. Let's pray. Father, I love this. I love this psalm, its beginning. I love these words. I love, Lord, that Asaph in obedience recorded them so that all these years later we might read them and hear them and take them to heart. But more than hearing them, Lord, we ask today that our hearts would be moved toward you in obedience and we ask for today your grace to help us understand how we might do these things. So we pray this time will be in time of instruction, but also a time of heart change, if needed, if needed. And we give this time to you in the name of Jesus, Father. Amen. So this morning, my teaching is on generational parenting. I was going to talk about parenting today, but just out of curiosity, how many of you have been to a seminar or something on parenting in the, in the past? How many of you have been to something? Probably most of us. How many of you have heard of teaching on parenting before? Yeah, probably most of us. If you've been in the church for any length of time, you've heard something on parenting. Why? Because it's so incredibly important. But as I began to pray about it and think about it, I thought, you know, I don't want to go over all of the things that we've all heard before. Necessarily, now I will address some of them very, very briefly. But more than that, I felt like God was putting in my heart to think bigger than that. To think bigger than the immediacy. And to look into the future. And then he dropped that in my heart, this sense of generational generational parenting, and I saw this psalm, and I knew that's what God wanted me to, to look at today and to teach and encourage the church with. In our Western world, the world we're living in today, we tend to think almost exclusively about the here and the now, the immediate. It's so much about career and job and the next step in our career and maybe beginning to think about retirement, even a lot of young people beginning to think about it. But there used to be a time in American history where people would think beyond themselves, almost out of necessity they did. When a farmer would clear a field, 
He had his son and his grandson and their families in mind, I'm sure, knowing that one day they would have that as their own livelihood, their means of supporting and taking care of their family. He was clearing that field with generations in mind. But we today in America think primarily and not exclusively of our own lives usually. And if we have kids, we obviously think about them. But maybe even if you're at a certain age, you might be thinking about grandchildren. But young families probably not yet. But God thinks in terms of generations. And he speaks of generations often in, in Scripture. He has a much larger and broader view of what he is doing in any given man at any given moment than just the immediacy of that man's life. We've all heard the statistics, sadly, of young people leaving the church, going off to college, and walking away from the faith of their parents, the faith of their upbringing. And we ask ourselves, why is it so? And we usually turn to the church as the problem. Most of the articles I've ever read on it have to do with the problems with the church. And granted, there are things the church can and should be doing. But I would say that the issue is more of what I'm going to be talking about today. It's more in the area of the short-sightedness of us as parents. But it's hard because as a young parent, and there are many in our church here among us, it's hard to dial up an awareness of future generations when you're dealing with a two- or three-year-old. You're just trying to survive. You're trying to cope oftentimes. If you've got three little ones under the age of six or seven, a mom and a dad, it's all they can do is to just take care of those three little ones. Single mom, even worse, even harder. But one morning we know that you'll find yourself with not three young ones, but now three teenagers raiding the refrigerator. And you're going to wonder how quickly and how fast did it get to this point. And then very shortly thereafter, those three will be leaving, leaving home and going out and spreading their wings and building their own lives. And I want to say that I believe that Scripture teaches, and what I want to look at this morning is that wisdom begins to think about their spiritual future as early as we possibly can. Because their spiritual future becomes your grandchildren's spiritual future. And I want to say to you, that is our legacy. That is the legacy that we will have, is the lives of our children, the lives of our grandchildren, and the lives of our grandchildren's children the kind of people they are, the kind of lives that they're living, will have their roots in our own faith and in our own lives. Psalm 127, if you could put that up for me, please, Elias. 127 verse 3, it says this. Behold, children are a heritage. Notice the word. A heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies. 
in the gate. Wow, another amazing text. Heritage. What does the word heritage mean? It's a special or an individual possession. It's an allotted portion. Something that is given or acquired by a predecessor and something that can be given then to another. It's an individual possession, an allotted portion, something that was given by a predecessor and then it can be given to another. Children are a heritage, the psalmist says in 127.3. They're an allotted portion from God, he says, a reward. A great blessing from God. And we leave them with something as their parents, which they in turn will pass on to their children and their children's children. But again, I wonder how often or how seldom probably most of us think about these things spiritually. We think about them financially. But do we think about them spiritually? And I would say, and I know you'll agree with me, that the spiritual treasure is more valuable than the earthly treasure. What we build into our kids spiritually has generational impact much more than riches will ever do and be. Have you ever wondered about the statement that the children of a man's youth are like arrows in the hand of a warrior? I have thought about that. What does that mean? And I, I think that basically what it means is that our children become an instrument of war in a sense. Kind of extreme. When we understand what God has given us in them and what he has given us for them, they become almost like, an, like a, a weapon, an instrument of war doing war. They're a means of peace piercing the cultural darkness in which we live today. They're a means of undermining and resisting the cultural liturgy that is anti everything we value and everything we love and everything we hold dear. Our children in our hands are a means of, as they grow up in the faith, of becoming an instrument of war for God and for the kingdom of God. We can, we can change the spiritual climate of cities in the way that we teach our children and invest into them spiritually as they become young men and women of God and they have their own families and that, that heritage is passed on. But they're not just objects to be used. That's not what I'm saying. They are people, beloved people of God whose lives will influence and shape their generation who in turn will pass that on to the next generation who will then shape their generation. Do we think this way? The Old Testament is filled with language of God revealing himself as this God of multiple generations. We know him as the God of whom? Abraham? Three generations. It's the, the, the term, the name, the identity that he used again and again and again in Scripture, to identify himself, I am the God of Abraham, not just Abraham, but of Isaac and Jacob. And when he called Abraham out of Ur, he saw Jacob, who was yet 
obviously not born. And it was from Jacob that would come the seed. The seed would continue, we know. And the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God sees generations, and he sees the fruit of generations. Genesis 17, 7, I'll just read this to you. He said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant. The covenant was for generations, he said, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. In Exodus 12, 14, it says, The day shall be, this day shall be for you a memorial day. The Lord speaking to the people of Israel, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. He sees multiple generations celebrating the same truths with an understanding of the importance of those truths. Esther 9, 28. These days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in time to come that we may say, here is the replica of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made, though not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifices, but as a witness between you and us. An altar that was built by men was to be commemorated for what it represented into the future generations again and again and again. Brothers and sisters, parenting is a generational reality. At least it should be in our hearts. In the New Testament, it is Paul who gives us this generational understanding and insight into building our families when he writes in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. See, the apostles understood this truth. They understood this reality. That what God was doing in their time, in their life, in their time through the church was meant to be carried on and passed on in every generation that would follow. That these truths are eternal truths. That this life is a life that is the eternal life. And that we, what we preach and what we speak of and he whom we follow is the God of generations of believers. And this is why we're doing all of this teaching this this series in, in Capital City Church and probably why we do everything that we do pretty much because we are so wanting, desiring to build strong believers. Singles, families who will pass a truly biblical faith on to the next generation. It's for the glory of God in the church as the Lord Jesus Christ is manifest in and through his people in our day. But it isn't just for you and I here today. It's for your children, my children, my children's children, your children's children, and their children, and on. 
What God does in you today, what he does in your heart today that is eternal, you can put into your children or your grandchildren. And they, in turn, can put it into theirs if we can understand this and if we have faith for it. And let me say to all of us today, it is not too late. Because many of us will go, wait a minute, it's past my opportunity. No, it's not. It's not too late. You still have opportunity to invest in your own families and to future generations. This is the Great Commission today, touching our families, making disciples who will also make disciples, and on and on and on. Yes, are you with me? So how do we do this? How do we do this as singles, maybe, who are gathered here today, who will one day hopefully be parents? as parents today now of children of various ages and as grandparents who are hoping to somehow be able to encourage and, and strengthen their own maybe adult children and grandchildren. And I don't know if we have any great-grandparents here yet, but, oh, we do. God bless you, Judy. I mean, that's three generations right there of possible discipleship and impact. And you know, if it's... No, I won't say that. I'll say that later. How do we do this? Well, we have to do what I spoke of a few weeks ago. We have to give ourselves repeatedly. Listen, we have to give ourselves repeatedly to those things which are good and holy and true. We have to develop a liturgy of life regarding family. But not just the immediacy of our individual families, but generational understanding of family. We have to, to, do our, to repeatedly do these things, the things that are good, holy, and true. And in doing them repeatedly, doing them again and again and again, we'll experience the grace that accompanies them. It will build into us. It will build into our families these realities and these truths. This is the process of developing a family liturgy, a biblical, cultural family liturgy. One that sees our lives as multi-generational. And so when you sing a song over or you pray with your little one before they go to bed that night, in your heart have... Have their little ones and their little ones' little ones in your heart. And not to build her up too much, but I know that's what Kath did. And it's bearing fruit. It bears fruit because the grace of God accompanies the repeated, repeated, repeated obedience to the things that are good and holy and true, that are done out of faith and out of obedience, knowing that the grace of God accompanies our obedience. How do we do this? There are three things I want to just speak of very briefly. If you could put the first one up for me, Elias. We must, first of all, all individually have our own vibrant devotion for the Lord Jesus Christ. It starts with you and with me. 
We have to have something in us beyond just something that is common, beyond something that is just religious, but something that is vibrant and real and living of a devotion for Christ. And I'll tell you, it's visible and it's contagious because it is not common. Not a convenient faith, but a living, vibrant faith that is evident to everyone who knows you and watches you. We have had multiple occasions in our own life where people have come, come into our home just to visit us who did not know the Lord, and they were touched simply being in the home. Not by anything that we said or did, but they came into a place where God's presence dwells. And one woman got saved early on in our early Christian experience. And she told us, it was when I came into your home that I experienced the presence of God. Something like that becomes manifest. And we're all sin sinners. We're not perfect. We're not talking about these great, great saints that we might be. We're just people saved by grace. But because we're desiring something more and because we're giving our hearts to something more and because we're seeking it wholeheartedly and because we are quick to turn away from sin and quick to turn to God, it's manifest in our lives and in our homes. So not a convenient faith, but a living, vibrant faith. And then depending on our current experience, we live out these principles that we have been talking about the last few weeks faithfully and consistently. We endeavor to have a radical faith amidst a, a deluded world. That's what we've been looking at the last few weeks. We engage and commit beyond personal preference and convenience. Matt talked about this two weeks ago. The church, the gathered church, and the importance of each of us, the part that we play, and the need for us to understand that we are needed and that we commit and give ourselves wholeheartedly for the building up and the blessing of others. We decide to live lives of self-denying generosity, which Matt spoke of last week. Having a clear eye, understanding what was really most important. And we do this as singles, individuals, as fathers, as mothers, as husbands, as wives, as grandparents. We live these principles out again and again and again. We commit to them in obedience. I think I've told you guys in the past that Whenever we would go on vacation, we would always still go to church. And so we have visited some interesting churches. But we would take all of our kids on Sundays to a church, regardless of where we were. Because we wanted them to understand the importance of gathering with the church of the saints of God on that day. So that they would begin to love and appreciate and understand the value and necessity of the church. We prioritize our priorities, in other words. What are your priorities? I'll say to you lovingly, prioritize them. 
put them in a right order before God. Determining to love what God loves the way that God loves it. And as I said in this last time that I taught on kingdom a worldview and I spoke about this truth, I, I said that the goal of our instruction isn't just to once again revisit familiar texts that we have heard so many times and just to try to get the church to think rightly about these things, but the goal is to love rightly. The goal of our instruction, Paul says, is love. To love rightly. Not to just to think rightly, although thinking rightly is important. But our hearts have to be moved towards these things in obedience. And regardless of where we are in life, it is not too early to think about them, nor too late. And that's God's mercy for us all. Because as we hear the word of God, as we hear the truth of God, there is grace to begin from where we are right now. And it may not be easy. It may not be easy to go home and to sit your kids down and to say, listen, I want to reprioritize some things in our life. I want to ask for your forgiveness because I have failed to whatever it may be. And I want to tell you that I'm going to commit to doing this and this. And this is why. Because I love you and I love Jesus. And I want you to love Jesus with all your heart. Or however you might say it to them, depending on their age. So the first thing that we must do is we must have our own vibrant devotion for the Lord and have our priorities prioritized rightly before God. The second thing we have to do is that we have to identify the present cultural liturgy that we're combating. We have to resist its hooks and its allurement, and its pressure to conform. We have to identify the present cultural liturgy regarding family and the values of family that we believe are biblical and kingdom importance. Catherine and I talked about this briefly. I asked her, what do you believe some of the cultural liturgies are regarding family? And it wasn't easy for us to really identify them because they're so subtle. And not only are they subtle, but they have been gradually imposed upon us. And so it's almost as though if you look back 50 years, you could say, well, this is how it used to be. And if you look at how it is now, you go, well, that's just how things have changed. This is just the world we're living in. That's true. But how did we get from there to there? Because we were slowly, our faith and these values have been eroded by the liturgy of culture that is anti-Christ. And so we have to see them for what they are, recognize them for what they are, and then prayerfully understand how we might begin to build a liturgy that is not, that is combating that, that is resisting that in our families, in our children, in our lives. What are some of these that I felt that I could identify? The first the pressure to either neglect, which is not common, obviously, among the church, to neglect our children and our families, although it does happen. But more of that, more often, the tendency to idolize our children and idolize family. 
So family takes precedent over other things when it should not. The children take precedent over things that they should not. And I could name them, and I would step on a bunch of our toes, but you know that uh, you know what I'm talking about. Prioritize your priorities. And then you might need to explain to your children why they can't do this on Sunday. Or why you're not going to do this as a family. Or why they're not going to participate in this when everyone else is. Because the cultural liturgy says, yes, that's okay, just go for it. What harm is it going to do? Well, they may not be doing any harm, so, so to speak. But what it isn't doing as well is it's not building anything generationally into their lives that they're going to pass on that is kingdom. What else is the liturgy the culture is imposing on us today? It's the fear of appearing unloving because we hold to the truth regarding gender, regarding marriage, regarding purity, sexual purity, regarding traditional roles in the family. We're going to appear unloving and old-fashioned because we hold to these truths. And it's going to be hard for our children to hold to them in the world in which they are going to grow up in. But they must understand why they must. And so we must hold them first. And then we must be able to communicate them. Another cultural liturgy of today the complete demonizing of, the, of patriarchy. Fathers as leaders, masculine as strength, masculinity as strength, not a weakness. The word patriarchy is a word that you can't even use today in our society. It's viewed as so evil. Old white male dominance. When really it's such a biblical word. It's as early as Genesis 1. Fathers, men, leading their homes, men being men, not domineering, not controlling, not dictating, but men being men, being masculine, being men. Masculinity is not machuism. Masculinity is being a man as God created a man. And not being afraid to lead as a man. But our culture says you better not try it. Another cultural liturgy is the, the pressure to allow total autonomy in our teens. Allowing them to do whatever they want to do when they reach a certain age because now they want to do it and they think they have the right to do it. And it's too much work to resist them doing it. They are not autonomous as teens. They are only quasi-independent. And they are growing towards total independence, but they must be yet brought under the leadership of the home, especially if there is the father. And as the liturgy of this present culture, and there are others that I'm not going to get into right now, we don't have time, become more and more clear to us, 
We, we combat it. We combat it with our own faithful, repeated faithful behavior, the habits that we develop, the actions that we have, that we do repeatedly in our homes with our families. We do them again and again and again. We do them consciously. We do them in faith. We do them to live obediently to God in this area of our lives because we know the grace of God accompanies it, and he will strengthen us because we're living in obedience. And you must know what they are for you. We had those a clear understanding in our home of what they were for us. We did them again and again and again and again, every day, every day, every afternoon, every night. Because we were building into them something that we valued. And that takes discipline both for us and for our children. And it's good to teach them that this is why we're doing it. It takes prayer and it takes constant communication between a husband and a wife, between parents and their children, talking and why we're doing what we're doing and why they are not allowed to do what we're asking them, not telling them not to do. Each family is designed to be a culture with a language, with customs, with traditions, and with countless unspoken assumptions, unspoken assumptions, to where they're just understood now because that's the way it is in our family. And if no one else is doing it, it doesn't matter. This is who we are. This is our culture. This is what is important to us. And I will tell you, it will be in their hearts, and they will put it in their children's hearts. And we're seeing it already in our lives. Some of the things they bucked against when they were young, now they're doing it with their kids. Because that's just the way it is in our family. And lastly, what we need to do is we need to lean onto the grace of God. Our God is a, gov- it's a covenant-keeping God. He's a God of covenant, and he's a covenant-keeping God. And at the heart of covenant-keeping is promise-believing. Because God said it, we must believe it. Because it's true, we hold fast to it. It's covenant. God made it with us, and we now hold fast to it. The New Testament amazingly teaches that there is grace upon the children of believing parents that is unique. Even if there is only one in a a family, if one of the parents is unbelieving, because there is one that is believing, there is grace upon the children because of the faith of that one parent. Look at 1 Corinthians 7.14, and I'm going to wrap it up here quickly, and we'll take communion. 1 Corinthians 7.14, turn in your Bibles, please, to it. I do not have a slide for it. Important text, interesting text, un, un, misunderstood text, for sure misunderstood. 1 Corinthians 7.14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy Because of her husband. And you ask, why is that? Because of covenant. I'll explain it in a moment. But if the unbelieving, excuse me, otherwise your children would be unclean. 
Huh. But as it is, they are what? Holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, and I don't want to go into that. I only wanted verse 14. That's a whole other subject. So in a marriage, if one of them is unbelieving, the other, though he is made, she is made holy by the faith of the believing one. And the children are holy simply by the faith of one, either the husband or the wife, in a marriage. Now, of course, if they're both believers, obviously it would be true. What does that mean? They're made holy. What does that mean? Not saved, not regenerate, but listen, set apart to God because of covenant. This is amazing. Though they will have the natures of being a sinner until they're regenerate, they have been given a tremendous covenantal privilege being born into a home with believing parents. Being made holy is contrasted with the word unclean. The children would be unclean otherwise. That word was used to describe that which was unacceptable to God ceremonially due to the covenant. Unclean. The children of unbelievers are unclean. Scripture teaches. The children of Christian parents are holy, yet unregenerate. But there's a privilege upon their lives. What an amazing thing to be born into a Christian home. What a privilege it is. We always glory in the glamorous testimonies of the unbelieving getting saved. What a glorious testimony it is of generational blessing. So the children of Christian parents are covenantally sanctified, even though their nature has not yet been changed through regeneration. So Christian parents can cling, listen, cling to, in faith to God's faithfulness for their children due to their own faith. So the question comes up, I thought election was sovereign. It is. But God, this is beautiful, God places his elect in families so that they might be trained until the time that God calls them with that irresistible calling to be his own. And they grow up in an environment that fosters faith, that fosters belief, that fosters understanding of the things of God. And that's why the scriptures say that though they may wander from the faith, one day they will return. And you can hold to that promise as well. And you can continue to pray for your children who might be adults who have not continued in the way because they grew up under the covenant. They grew up in a home of the covenant. And the grace of God was uniquely upon their lives. And the grace of God, I believe, remains uniquely upon their lives. 
But now from where we are here today, let's, let's determine in our hearts to build families generationally. If you've got young kids today, let this just encourage you to see into the future. If you've got teens, speak to them in love. Try to teach them as you can and pray for them and pray for their future spouse, that they will marry the right person and that they will train their children in the ways of God. If you've got grandchildren, put your arms around them and put the truth of God into their hearts as much as you can. Not usurping the authority of their parents but being who you can be in their lives. Amen? And teach them the ways of the Lord. Amen. I want to close by reading something that is very powerful. I forgot to take it up there with me. It's an article that uh, we came upon. A few months ago. It's the story of a man who went to a, an island. Sorry, I just lost it. I have it. Why would I do that? He, he, he evangelized in a, a people who were cannibals. And not long before he had been there, they had actually killed and eaten the missionaries. It's not funny. That had, that had come. <laughs> I don't know why I laughed. Uh, and he went and he was sent and he took his wife and children with him to go to this, to this people to evangelize them. And he did. And they, all, they ended up in now the island, the peoples, most of them are believers at this time now. And... The story really recounts the fact that it was his father who impacted his life to be the kind of man that he was. And he tells the story of his father, a man named James Patton, and how the kind of life that he lived and how the son who went and did the missionary work saw the life of his father the way that his father lived. And, and this was put into his heart through all of the years of living in his home and watching him. He was, a, he was a, a cobbler and a very simple man, but he had a strong, vibrant faith, and he taught his children the things of God, and he had a spiritual legacy that was passed on to his son, who then ended up having such impact. And so the story is beautiful and it's powerful, but let me just read this. It's the close of this article written by someone who is recounting these truths. And he says, Father... Fathers, we will not all have children so distinguished as to convert an island of cannibals to Christ, but we can all live the beautiful ordinances of James Patton, wholehearted worship, glad gravity, ferocious faithfulness, passionate prayer, and domestic discipleship. And of the many lessons he teaches us one primary lesson for me is to relentlessly pray and exhort my children that they may know the Christ that I know. God bless you, my son, James Patton said, as he handed his son into the hands of divine providence. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. 
Simply put, the sincere hope of every godly man is that may you worship your father's God. If given but one plea, I do not ask for little league championships, for a prosperous career, for a peaceful life devoid of hardship, for a beautiful spouse or adorable grandchildren who live just down the street. My hope for you exceeds the best gifts of this life. I long and fast, I instruct and encourage, I discipline and exhort, I forgive and ask for forgiveness towards this supernatural end, that you worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Sixty years would still be too short a time together. I don't just want the pleasure of sharing a home with you in this life. I yearn to share a kingdom with you in the next And I plead that my God, not some abstract worldview or distant deity, but may my Lord, the Lord, whom I have served these years, be yours. May you trust in him. May he prove as faithful to you as he has to me. May you resist the painted beauties of this world and find all your all in the God who promises you himself and all of the earth beside. He is the light in the darkness, the comfort in the deepest valleys, the presence that silences the gravest fears. He is higher. He is better. He is worthy. The greatest inheritance I long to leave you is a living faith in this most merciful God. Amen. Stand with me, please.